Welcome to Friday and welcome to the Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. This next hour we've got together, we're going to figure out what happened this week in these parts and what it all means with our panel of journalists. And we've got from Cairo 7, Essex Porter here, reports on government and politics. Essex, thanks for coming back on the show. Glad to be here. Q13 correspondent Brandy Cruz. Welcome back, Brandy. Thanks for having me. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. And from Unite Seattle Magazine, publisher and editor-in-chief M.K. Scott. Welcome, M.K. Thank you. Welcome. By the way, we are live streaming the show on Facebook and YouTube, as always. You just find us there by searching for KUOW Public Radio. Uh, and uh, enjoy watching everybody but me because I'm not there because my remote working Internet connection is uh, failing me on the visual side. So I can hear my guests and and not see them. But I trust that you're there. I trust my ears. Uh, let's uh, let's get into the news of this week. Washington State employees, many of them, King employees have got two months to get vaccinated against COVID unless they've got a religious or medical exemption. Republican legislative leaders called this week's announcement heavy-handed and said Washingtonians should be free to make that vaccine decision themselves. But Governor Inslee said he is standing up for freedom. We want the freedom of not having to shut down our economy again. We want the freedom of not having to wear masks sometime in the future. We want freedom of our children, not having to worry about getting this disease. And Brandy Cruz, you asked a state worker what she would like to say to Governor Inslee. I don't have anything positive to say to him, especially today. I do feel shocked and betrayed. As I said, I've, I, among everyone else, have done nothing but work safely from home. We've been loyal. We, we love what we do. And I, it is unbelievable that you would tell us what we have to do with our own health decisions or threaten our employment or security of our families. It's disgusting. So it's a tough decision that government leaders are making. Uh, Brandy, I'll, I'll start with you. What do, what do our listeners need to know about this decision? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting wrinkles to this because it's not just state employees. King County also did this. The city of mm-hmm. Seattle has about 12,000 workers that are covered by this. Um, You know, and I think there's this debate that's going on moving forward about uh, whether this should also be extended to schools. You know, we have, for instance, of the state workers I spoke to, um, a worker with the Department of Agriculture who really doesn't see anyone else during the day. The woman you just heard from works for the Department of Labor and Industries in sort of an office setting. And then you have this situation where one of the justifications for the vaccine mandate is the fact that you have kids going back to school soon, Um, the the Delta variant on the rise and kids not eligible for a vaccine. So you want to make sure that kids are protected since they they can't be vaccinated. And then you don't order this as the governor for arguably state workers who are around children the most, which is teachers. And so you had the superintendent of public instruction, Chris Reichdahl, come out today and ask the governor to make it mandatory for teachers and for school staff. I think the governor will probably do that. Um, I'm not sure why he didn't lump it in with the initial group. And then just another wrinkle that's interesting to consider for listeners in Seattle is what's going to happen with SPD officers. You know, Mayor Durkin and I had a pretty tense exchange about this because she's been talking for months about how we can't afford to lose any more officers. But uh, officers are lumped into this. There are certainly officers I've heard from them who are unvaccinated. So would she really uh, fire SPD officers come October 18th? That's a real question. 
Essex, why are these uh, government orders not including an option for the unvaccinated employee's supervisor to assign that person to work from home? Is, is, uh, are, are the firings just automatic and mandatory? Uh, you know, it does not sound like the firings will be automatic. Uh, but certainly people are at risk of termination if they do not get the vaccine. Uh, the, uh, you know, the governor uh, explained uh, a couple of things in his news conference over this. Uh, you know, the question came up, well, in some places it's vaccine or test, uh, but uh, the health officials here looked at that and felt that that actually was not uh, effective, that that still allowed uh, the virus to spread and didn't meet their their uh, goal of trying to sharply reduce uh, the spread of uh, the Delta the Delta variant uh, COVID virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and Bill, uh, help me with the, the other part of your question there. Oh, I was wondering, and I, this is really for for anyone on the panel. I, w- I was wondering whether the um, the firings will be automatic. Will they be mandatory? Will there be discretion? Brandy was questioning whether uh, Seattle police officers will actually get fired. Um, would supervisors be able to say, "Okay, you're unvaccinated, um, but you can work remotely," or you know, you can't. Your job requires you to be around people. You're fired. Um, yeah, that's the question. I think I think that's going to be difficult for the, the governor to allow too much discretion. Uh, the governor's mandate already allows a religious uh, exemption and mm-hmm. a health exemption. Uh, that may be as far as as uh, the governor can go, uh, because if you if you allow too many exceptions, you'll have lots of exceptions, mm-hmm. and you won't meet the goal that the mandate is trying to meet. MK, what else should listeners know about this? Um, well, I think it's mostly due to the fact that um, regards to government employees, you know, they should be able to, um, uh, they, sh- they should be able to um, mandatory uh, saying that you need to be vaccinated mandatory. In regards to um, the Seattle Police Guild and all, um, they've already shown, especially in the last year, of where their rules and regulations are completely different from everybody else's. Hmm. Brandy, do you know where it is that the, well, the a municipality, a government can clearly legally uh, require vaccines like this and where it is that the unions get to bargain the impact of that decision? I, I don't know if I could cite specific, but, you know, some of this is happening under emergency powers. Obviously, the union, mm-hmm. the guild um, believes that this is a mandatory subject of bargaining. And by the way, The mayor doesn't necessarily disagree with that when I spoke to her. Uh, And so to me, and if I had to venture a guess of what's going to happen, I don't believe they're going to fire any officers on October 18th. I believe the city knows that they're uh, not going to do that, that they can't afford to do that. And that ultimately they're going to use the union in bargaining as a reason why. I just I just don't see the mayor talking about it for two months, needing to uh, retain officers, then turning around and getting rid of some. Yeah. And by the way, the October deadline, I I think the assumption is this gives the FDA time to give full approval to these vaccines instead of just emergency youth authorization, which some people uh, say is, you know, well, there's the FDA telling us that this is uh, we don't know enough about this vaccine yet. Well, I think October 18th is pretty optimistic, actually, for full use uh, uh, approval from from what I've been reading. Uh, 
there's there still may be uh, you know many more weeks beyond that uh, because they go through uh, such a detailed uh, process uh, to do it. But you know, even if there were full approval, how many of the people who are objecting to being vaccinated now would say, "Oh, full approval, I'm fine." Uh, you know, uh, with the woman that that uh, that Brandy talked with, who was so concerned. Uh, you know, I, and I don't know, Brandy, if full approval came up in your discussion, but it doesn't. A lot of times, it just doesn't sound like full approval is is the uh, necessarily the be all and end all of getting people vaccinated. Yeah, and I can shed a little light on that. I mean, I got hundreds of emails from state employees, from city employees, talking about their varying reasons. And I did get a couple emails, and I did an interview with a, a gentleman who's worked in public health for two and a half years, who's subject to this mandate, who says that he is going to relent that after holding off for this long because he didn't feel comfortable, it hasn't been fully approved by the FDA, he's not willing to lose his job, his wife is pregnant, um, you know, they have, he has his family to worry about. So he is gonna be one of the state workers that, that changes their mind. Um, but as far as the woman who we heard from earlier, um, her name is Miranda, he, she works for Labor and Industries. Um, she said her family, she, they don't do the flu vaccine. Uh, so it's not just about COVID. It's not about the political hot potato that COVID has somehow become in the vaccine. Uh, she just, that they don't do vaccines and she's not going to do this one full FDA approval or not. Okay. Meanwhile, we've got Snohomish County saying everybody older than five years old starting today has to mask up in public indoor spaces. So not private ones like offices and homes, but indoor places, you know, stores, et cetera, where where people can gather. Uh, We've got we mentioned schools a little bit. There are some Republican Washington state lawmakers asking that the school mandate question be up to uh, individual school districts, leave it up to local districts, whether they want to mandate masks. Uh, you've got UW Medicine postpone, postponing some surgeries because of uh, surges at, uh, at their hospitals, and that's going on other places, other hospitals as well. MK, anything to add to what we've said so far? Uh, nothing at this moment. Okay. Anybody else? Well, the one thing I would add is I, I asked the governor's office whether if someone were terminated because uh, they didn't get the vaccine, whether they would be eligible for unemployment insurance. And uh, the answer is mostly no. Maybe the Employment Security uh, Division uh, would would do so. Uh, but it looks like they're going to go on a case-by-case basis there. Yeah, good question. And Bill, yeah. to put a bow on the SPD issue, we mm-hmm. do not know how many officers are not vaccinated. The um, police guild will not tell us. Uh, and the city, as of this point, does not have that information. Okay. All right, so that's that's an update on the uh, the COVID surge and uh, and the uh, public and private measures against it. Meanwhile, the the extra COVID cases might complicate uh, this week's heat surge. As I said, in some hospitals, there are twice as many COVID patients in intensive care this week as during the the heat wave that we had back in June. Um, we heard in our newscast a moment ago that Bellingham hit a hundred yesterday. Seattle's expecting the nineties. Again today at the Harborview Emergency Room, Dr. Steve Mitchell's working with the hospital cafeteria to make sure they've got enough frozen water. We would be able to literally pack patients in ice, just pack ice around their body to rapidly cool them because that's the way to protect them from some of the severe impacts of the most serious kind of heat illness, which is heat stroke. Even Dick's drive through is closed today because of the heat. And meanwhile... Um, I I just closed my windows 
uh, just so um, you know, I wouldn't have whatever noise is happening outside intrude on our program. But as a but the uh, the side benefit of doing that was that uh, I cut off the smell of smoke, which has infiltrated my home. On the other hand. Um, I like my windows open right now with the heat. We've got uh, air quality in Seattle very unhealthy yesterday. Today it's just supposed to be unhealthy. A little bit better in uh, Everett, Bellevue, Olympia. Uh, we might get a little rain on Monday. MK, anything to uh, to add to our heat smoke uh, update this week? Oh, actually, uh, correct. Um, the um, the smoke. Uh, the the good news is the smoke is not as heavy as it has been in the last couple of years. Uh, and I'm glad that I actually we have masks for the for the mask mandate of where we're not going to have to you know breathe in a lot of that smoke. But uh, the interesting thing is that the uh, um, the haze and the smoke is coming a little bit later than has done in the past. Yeah, I've been uh, worrying about this for uh, you know we've been hearing about this for a long time, right? So many oh. fires so early. Um, Essex, uh, where do you think we stand here with uh, our attempts to give people a place to cool off, uh, shelter from the smoke, uh, et cetera. You know, uh, this time it feels like it's uh, been more proactive. I think uh, for the last heat, uh, there were locations, including Seattle, that were caught off guard and scrambling at the last moment. They can, they've built on what they've done there. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of news releases from uh, not just Seattle, but uh, other places uh, around Seattle. Uh, where they've opened buildings, uh, they've got misting tents. Um, they're perhaps even more actively looking for people uh, who are living outdoors. So, uh, you know, we practice it once already. There certainly is more that's been done. This time it's a little better organized. And it, in Seattle anyway, it is not quite as hot, although it can be a little difficult to tell the difference. I will tell you, I'm not uh, working today, so normally I would uh, join you from my house, but my car has air conditioning, so that's why I'm in my mobile newsroom. Ah, AC in the car. Brandy, what has stood out to you this week? Well, you know, the firefighter or the wildfire thing rather is a huge concern. I chatted a couple times this week with Hillary Franz, obviously the public lands commissioner. I will tell you, she's really, really worried um, the situation has already been bad, um, you know, given how hot it's going to be this weekend and then heading into the, the holiday weekend in a little bit. Um, it, it is it is not a great place to be in. And so I think what just stands out is, you know, I was driving um, into Bellevue today and I saw two trucks with chains dragging on the road, um, mm. which people don't understand the little things that can spark a fire. I think it's yep. something like 80 to 90% of fires are, are caused by humans. And so it, it's just, and again, I know it feels redundant from the news, just making sure that nothing we do uh, is contributing to the fires that are being lit, you know, both on the west side of the state and the east side of the state. But, um, you know, um, I guess my, my heart goes out to the firefighters who I think are going to be in for a long weekend and a long couple of weeks ahead. Yeah, I've seen highway signs uh, telling you to uh, secure anything that might uh, might create sparks as you're driving. And we got this United Nations climate change report this week. And uh, Essex, you were saying uh, the, the Biden administration is is being a little puzzling on this matter. Yeah, because also this week, the Biden administration uh, you know, sent a letter to OPEC, uh, the oil cartel, and asked them to pump more oil because if they pump more oil, it will lower 
uh, the price of gasoline, which, you know, around here is always high anyway, and now is above $4 a gallon in a lot of places. And they got a lot of pushback from their usual allies, uh, the climate uh, change uh, uh, advocates who are saying, no, we can't pull more carbon out of the ground. You know, we have enough trouble trying to reduce the amount of carbon we're putting out in the first place. And they're, they're upset with the Biden administration for asking for more oil to be pumped so that it can be burned as gasoline. And they're caught in between this because the Biden administration also needs the economy to be strong. And that means gas prices need to be lower because, of course, higher gas prices drain money from the rest of the economy. Right. M.K. Scott, you were telling us if you wanted to live in Palm Springs, you would. I would, yeah. Or go to Puerto Vallarta. A lot of friends are going to Puerto Vallarta right now or in Palm Springs right now. And if I would have, if I wanted to be in this heat, I would. So now you don't have too much of a choice. If you have to be here. Yeah, I've seen people asking in Twitter, et cetera, uh, what it means when you look forward to the summers all year long uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, how do you how do you think about the the rain when you no longer can say, oh, just wait till the, the, the glories of summer in the Pacific Northwest? I may be overstating it a bit. Uh, I don't know. I kind of um, I don't know. I just don't know yet how what it feels. I guess I feel unsettled. I feel like there's a time of transition. And if, if this is a quote unquote new normal. Uh, what it means to be living not in Palm Springs, but in uh, in Seattle, Washington. Anybody have anything to add on 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 climate, heat, and smoke? Well, the other the other yeah. thing, you know, if if this is a new normal, uh, this is terrible for Washington's agriculture industry. You know, we we saw the story from the Associated Press earlier this week from Eastern Washington, where the wheat crop is being devastated by the heat and uh, you know farmers, uh, some of them on the edge of bankruptcy because their crops are going to be so very small. And again, small crops drive up prices. So we will feel it, you know, um, uh, my favorite cereal is an oat cereal, but if you like the wheat cereals, mm. you, you're definitely going to, you feel it, you're going to feel it in the price of bread because, uh, you know, when the, when the crops are small, the price of uh, the raw materials goes up. Yeah, just in Washington State, I've heard this about wheat crops. I've heard it about shellfish. I've heard it about walla walla sweet onions, etc. Uh, anything more on uh, on heat and smoke and climate before we uh, roll on with the show? Rest rest at the show actually, here. Yeah, I do. Yeah, uh, actually, um, we have a governor who is uh, very environmental and is very very pro green. And so I'm thinking that whatever he does or whatever he does to handle this. Inslee, uh, he, I'm thinking he is going to be a good leader for the rest of the country, uh, depending yeah. on what he does to, uh, you know, to combat this uh, problem. Yeah, he's he's certainly staked out a place for himself on the climate front. And President Biden was, uh, uh, as Essex was was pointing out to me, that you know President Biden had uh, uh, given Governor Inslee a shout out for his stance. Yeah. Although you, I, I will say the, uh, the conservative think tanks here are, are constantly scrutinizing uh, Governor Inslee's actions and whether they are truly the most cost effective actions to reduce climate change and whether they've had uh, much effect. The record is, is truly mixed. Uh, the gov- this is clearly a passion for the governor, uh, clearly something he has uh, put into action as best he can, taking political risks to do so. 
but uh, we still need to judge whether it's been effective. That's a good point. What's actually effective? What could Washington State do by itself? What's cost effective? What can Inslee and legislators actually get get past? Uh, it, it, it's a complicated thing. We're talking here on uh, Week in Review with my guest. That was Essex Porter from Cairo 7. We got Brandy Cruz here from Q13 and M.K. Scott from Unite Seattle Magazine. There was a big ruling this week from the Washington State Supreme Court regarding uh, the rights of people living in their vehicles. We're going to tell you about that and more as you stay tuned to the show. We're live streaming the show on Facebook and YouTube uh, everybody's there but me because I'm having a little uh, connection problem, but uh, find us there on Facebook or YouTube by searching for KUOW Public Radio, and we will come right back in a moment. Bill Radke here. Welcome back to the show. A new ruling this week from the Washington State Supreme Court will help people living in their vehicles from having those vehicles towed and auctioned off. Under yesterday's ruling, if someone says a vehicle is their home, they will be afforded the same protections as a typical homeowner. And Brandy Cruz of Q13, you've said this is this is a huge deal for all cities. Yeah, every city in the state, really. Um, And we know that there are thousands of people in our state who live in their car or live in an RV. So this is a story that goes back to 2016 and a guy named Stephen Long. He kind of worked as like a a handyman construction worker and he gets back from working one day and realizes his truck is gone. He'd been homeless since 2014. Uh, And then he found out that if he didn't pay a $900 fine, uh, on top of the, the latest ticket that he got, so nearly $1,000 that his truck was going to be auctioned off. And he argued, like, look, that's, first of all, excessive. I can't afford to pay that. Uh, and then second, this truck is my home. Uh, and so that wound up in the state Supreme Court. Um, and, and the reason this has such a huge impact, and there's some things I think it's important to know that the ruling does do and, and doesn't do. First of all, the state Supreme Court said it's okay to issue fines, you know, if a car or an RV is parked somewhere for an extended period of time or somewhere it shouldn't be parked, but those fines can't be excessive. Um, And then they also, uh, basically, you you can't auction somebody's vehicle off if they, it gets towed and they can't pay the fines. So you're not gonna really have tow yards who are gonna be away uh, if they can't later auction them off, uh, because what will be the point? Then you just have a car sitting somewhere taking up space. And so really, this makes it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for cities to uh, have someone's car towed away that they are living in. And this, I should note, what's really interesting here is this actually, the state Supreme Court based this off the Homestead Act. Um, And basically what the Homestead Act uh, says is that if you are a citizen of this country, um, you ought to be able to be somewhere, you have a right to be somewhere where your family can be sheltered, and I should quote it, uh, living beyond the reach of financial misfortune and the demands of certain classes of creditors. So basically, uh, the ruling found that this truck was indeed his quote unquote homestead. Yeah. Essex, do you know how this relates to the idea of someone's uh, home being a tent and they're camping on public property? I, I don't know how it, I, I, I don't know. I haven't made that connection or, or uh, thought that uh, thought that through. Um, you know, the uh, I'm, I'm not sure that a person can claim public property as their home. The truck's private property. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 
um, you know, there, there, may be that, uh, there may be that difference there. Uh, but the, the idea of excessive fines, I think, goes, you know, beyond this case to, uh, you know, a lot of other cases. If, you know, if you thought that fines would keep people from camping on the sidewalk, uh, those fines can't be excessive. And uh, I, I saw uh, notices and even tweets uh, from uh, legal organizations around the country celebrating the idea that the Washington Supreme Court had set a standard for uh, fines. Yes, you can have fines, but they can't be excessive. The other thing that struck me about what uh, the, the court did when I first uh, read through the ruling is that the court reached back into history. Uh, it seemed to me maybe just going a little out of their way to mention the social economic roots of the homelessness crisis. And I'll quote what they said. Uh, they blamed it on volatile housing markets, un certain social safety nets, colonialism, slavery, and discriminative housing practices all exacerbated by the global COVID-19 pandemic. So the court, uh, you know, very much making a statement there as well, a statement that didn't necessarily, I, I don't think, had to be in the ruling. Yeah. What, what, is, what do you think the significance of that statement is? Uh, is, there, is there a legal significance to that? Is there policy significance? Or is that just, um, you know, com- uh, side commentary? Well, you know, I, I think it's a, a bit of a bit of all three, especially uh, social commentary. Uh, you know, the, the court over the last year has has done some things. Uh, they've gone back to some very old rulings that upheld discrimination and reversed those rulings. Uh, a ruling uh, against the Native American uh, fishermen uh, they reversed and and made a point of letting everybody know uh, a, a ruling against a black family that wanted to bury a child in a cemetery and uh, was not allowed to do so. Uh, a previous Supreme Court had upheld that ruling. This Supreme Court just went back in history and changed it. Uh, and it's part of the response really to the social justice movement that we saw you know, so much uh, in, the, in the summer of uh, 2020. And uh, so the court, again, taking an opportunity to make a statement here. Yeah, good point. And MK, you were saying regarding the, the this week's ruling on living in one's vehicle that it brings us back to the question of a place where you're allowed to park your car and or your RV. That is correct. It's like uh, um, I remember. Uh, I would say this was a few months ago. You were interviewing uh, Jenny Durkin, and I think it was either you or a someone who was calling in asking questions about uh, why can't the state. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the city, not the state, or it could be the state too. Uh, the state or the city could actually put together a spot of where, you know, RVs, campers, you know, and cars can actually all park in one spot, you know. And I think uh, uh, the mayor said something about uh, that uh, it, would be, it would cause problems in regards to sanitary and, uh, and cleanup. Yeah, Brandy, the city has made uh, moves toward RV uh, and, and car parking areas in the past. Yeah, you would just have to make sure, um, you know, there's always issues that arise with uh, making sure nobody's coming into those areas. You've got to kind of give, give um, be it fencing or a security 
um, kind of like tiny house villages. If you've ever visited a tiny house village or gone on a tour of one, uh, they have sort of very strict rules for in and out. And there's always a security guard there making sure the area is safe. And so it's not as easy as just like, hey, this lot's empty, take this lot. You really have to have sanitation services, all of those things available that you would for like a small community to be able to make that um, uh, successful. Right. Brandy, do you know how municip- you know, I, I, municipalities, cities would decide what fine is excessive? Does that mean the, the government is doing audits to find out who can afford what in terms of fines? How does that work? I think it, it would just have to be based on the ability to pay. And, and this is where this ruling um, is, is going to end up being much more impactful than even the ruling is written. Because if you're talking about people who are living in their car, truck, or RV, they probably don't have a lot of money. Uh, right. And so an excessive fine is probably going to be a pretty low bar. Uh, and so what point is there for a city like Seattle to levy a bunch of parking fines against someone who's not going to be able to pay them, um, who doesn't have a, a lot of money to begin with, and then against a vehicle that you're not ultimately going to be able to tow because a tow yard won't ultimately be able to auction it. So I, I just don't, there's this sort of, even though they're saying you can, you can levy fines, I mean, is there really a point to that besides making a poor person more poor? Right. Okay. Any more questions that you have or more to say about this week's state Supreme Court ruling on what a city can and can't do regarding someone living in their car or RV? I mean, it does, it does put a lot of, I'm sorry, it does put a lot of pressure on cities to actually find solutions. Uh, when, when you when you can't uh, think that you can punish people or enforce your way out of this problem, now you really are going to have to find solutions. Yeah, have you? 100%. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very true. Any, any ideas about what uh, policy changes, what new expenditures, new services are going to come out of this week's state Supreme Court ruling? Well, if I had the answer to what ones would be effective, uh, we wouldn't be 10 years into a homelessness crisis that gets worse every day. Mm. But, you know, Essex has a point. I believe the last point in time count for King County had 2,700 uh, or almost 3,000 people living in their vehicles. Um, and as a result of this, you have to wonder, OK, what's the impact of that going to be? Uh, is that number going to increase because now people don't have to move around every 72 hours? They don't risk fines or Im- Im- impounding their vehicle. Uh, and so, you know, if, if anything, the, the county and the city should be increasing their and every city, for that matter, should be increasing their outreach to people who are living in their vehicles. Um, the same as they would focus attention on a homeless encampment somewhere where there's a big concentration of people. They need to be out in the city more because um, one of the it challenges is. Uh, people who live in their RVs or cars are often very spread out. Yes. MK, anything to add? Okay. Well, in regards to actually, it's very similar to um, what Dow and King County had uh, recently uh, determined. You know, it took them so long for them to actually realize that if you can't afford to pay a fare on Metro or on Link, you're certainly not going to be able to afford paying a huge fine. Yes, that's right. Uh, so maybe we're seeing in in Washington State a the the courts get involved in limiting um, what kind of enforcement can be done when it's um, a so-called crime or um, or violation uh, due to poverty. 
Okay, let's. Uh, I want to just bring up one more sort of item on homelessness this week, which is that the city of Seattle removed most of the tents from the encampment at City Hall Park near the King County Courthouse. Uh, some county officials had been asking the city to move those campers. They, they, those officials blame crimes on the campers. There was a fatal stabbing in the park earlier this summer. There was an attempted rape recently in a courthouse restroom. The Seattle Times reports that the vast majority of the 70 or so campers at City Hall Park did not just take their tents and move them down the street. They took referrals to shelters, tiny home villages, hotel rooms. Are we in a are we in a new era of of tent clearing and getting people into housing? What was significant about this uh, uh, this um, uh, these events this week? Well, I think there's a lot of significance. You know, I'm fascinated by this story. There's a lot of unfortunate elements to obviously what's happening down there uh, and the undeniable issues at play. But, you know, when you have there, I believe there's 52 people living in the park and about 40 of them accepted access to some sort of alternative shelter um, and they're still working on the others. But that shows that we have the shelter availability and that when you do outreach and you have an immediate option and multiple options for people, be it a hotel that King County has bought, a tiny house village, some other sort of shelter, that people will accept it, especially if they can't stay where they are. You had a situation where this camp had been there for a long time. There had been outreach done at this camp before, this homeless camp, but until individuals were faced with the prospect of, well, this camp is going to be cleared. It's not going to be here. And then they were offered good alternatives to shelter. They accepted them. And so in a way, I know that sweeps is a controversial issue in the city of Seattle, but for these individuals and really the positive outcome of having the vast majority of those people in a better situation today than they were a week ago, a lot of that is by virtue of the fact that had they stayed, they wouldn't have had somewhere to stay there. So it's just an interesting dynamic, I think, to that debate over sweeps about we have the shelter now, we have the capacity, we have all sorts of options to be able to get people out of those really unsafe conditions. Um, and and sometimes it does take sort of the, is it the stick approach where it's like this camp is going to be removed, um, but we've got better options for you. Yeah. And Kay Scott, anything to add there? Okay, well, actually, one thing was kind of cool because I know uh, Mayor Durkin was actually in the process of actually uh, making sure that um, when you try to kick out the homeless out of city or, you know, city parks, you do have an actual uh, duty to be able to make sure they know exactly where they're going and uh, what type of services they're helping. So um, I like the idea about how the city and the county, as well as uh, the new um, nonprofit uh, program uh, for the city called Just Cares Program, uh, is working together and actually uh, making sure that there is uh, a problem that they can solve on that. Yeah, and what I would say also, Bill, is the, the crime issues and the safety issues by the King County Courthouse, they, that, that homeless camp did not bring them there. Um, you know, I used to, at the beginning of my career, when I was in radio, I covered law and justice. And I was down at the King County Courthouse almost every day. And there was, there was safety issues then, long before City Hall Park became an established homeless encampment. So just clearing the homeless encampment out of there, although yes, 
Um, did it lead to some of the more high profile crimes we saw? Of course, but there has been crime issues on that block. I believe it's still the, um, uh, the block with the highest number of 911 calls in the city. And so just sweeping the homeless camp out is not a, is not a solution to all of that. And so it's going to take the city of Seattle and I think King County working together to make that a, a safe place to visit. You know, if you've got folks coming in from outside the city of Seattle, they get called for jury duty. I mean, man, you think they want to come with all these headlines? The King County Sheriff's Office, it's not even safe enough for their employees to work there. Judges are speaking out. They don't feel safe. Why would a regular citizen from outside the city want to come into King County to do jury duty at that courthouse right now? So I want to hear from Essex here, but Brandy, do you think that county officials like uh, Councilmember Reagan Dunn have been irresponsibly linking um, homeless encampments to crime in that area? No, no, because there is a link. You can't deny that. Somebody was, and, and I think this is important. When we talk about crime and the dangers of homeless encampment, I think there's this assumption, oh, this Fox News lady is going to say that the homeless people are the ones doing it. Yes, there's a couple examples of that. We know that the individual in the attempted rape uh, inside the courthouse was homeless. Uh, and then there was the guy who was homeless who kicked the dog to death. Um, so, no, I don't think that's irresponsible to simply state facts. But you also have to consider that some of the people who are most susceptible to violent crimes are the homeless. Uh, And so when we talk about safety issues surrounding a homeless encampment, it's not just about the safety issues for everyone outside the homeless encampment. It's for the safety of the people living there as well. Someone was stabbed to death there. Uh, We've had murders in homeless encampments going all the way back to the jungle. If you remember the high profile shooting there, people living in a tent. Uh, And so when we talk about safety uh, and public safety around the issue of homelessness, It's not meant to be divisive. We just have to talk about it in a factual way and also appreciate and understand the um, true safety risks that um, come with living uh, on the streets or living in a tent. Essex Porter, your take on this? Essex, you still with us? I don't have the Zoom up because that's failed on my end. I think we may not have Essex right now. Oh, okay, got it. Uh, Okay. Well, anything, uh, thank you for those points, Brandy. Anything more to say about um, uh, City Hall Park or city, it's not just city, but, you know, King County and the city of Seattle are sort of merging their homelessness approaches. Anything to add before we uh, move on with the show? No, I was just thinking one thing uh, about um, what I've been noticing in Capitol Hill. Uh, There's been a lot of situations of where homeless people have actually been going out and digging into garbage cans and pulling everything out of garbage cans and so forth. So there has been a huge problem in regards to that. You were saying, Brandy? No, I was just gonna say in regards to what's happening at the King County Courthouse, I know it's an issue that's got a lot of headlines, but I don't want people to expect the cleanup to be a panacea. It's definitely not going to. So if you think it's gonna be done and then Uh, We're going to go down there and everything's going to be great at the courthouse. Uh, Very far from it. And hopefully King County and Seattle, they've been kind of trading barbs back and forth because King County looks at this as really the city of Seattle's responsibility, which technically it is. But I think they could work together to to make this a safe place for everyone to be. Do you see this being a big uh, election issue as we head toward our November general in the city and the county? 
Well, the broader issues at play certainly are. I think public safety is going to be one of the top election issues, both with uh, regards to the Seattle Police Department and staffing, but also the really concerning uptick in shootings and in homicides that we've seen. And obviously some of that is happening down um, on this block uh, of the city. And so, you know, I know Bruce Harrell um, and Davison uh, was down, they were both down at the March for uh, safety that happened around the King County Courthouse. So I know they are definitely in tune to this and making it a campaign issue, uh, but no doubt. In fact, I believe one of the mayoral debates is uh, specifically about public safety coming up in October. That's Q13 correspondent Brandy Cruz, and I understand we have Cairo 7 correspondent Essex Porter joining us by phone. Essex, did your did your uh, car air conditioner knock out your internet connection? Uh, not me. No, my Wi-Fi okay. got too hot and died, and I can probably join you uh, oh, by wow. uh, by Zoom in just a moment. But uh, you know, uh, the one thing I was I was uh, you know listening to Brandy, she's absolutely correct. The problems at City Hall Park, you know, are far, far older than the homelessness problem that we've been trying to tackle and, and for at least 10 years. And uh, I think, you know, one of the things that happens is it's, it's too easy to conflate crime at the park with crime in the courthouse uh, when sometimes they're not, you know, exactly connected. But the fact that the area around the courthouse has very much an unsafe feeling and very much that feeling for for good reason, I think, uh, is definitely an issue and is going to be one of the central issues in the, in the mayoral campaign. You know, it's a long time to November. There will unfortunately be probably other terrible crimes that happen there or in other places in the city, and that's going to take a lot of attention in the campaign because uh, the two candidates for mayor have different approaches to how they want to handle the police situation. Yeah, we'll be talking more about that uh, election as the summer continues and into the fall. You just heard Essex Porter from Cairo 7, who covers government and politics. We've got Q13 correspondent Brandy Cruz here and Unite Seattle magazine publisher and editor-in-chief M.K. Scott. And we're going to take a short break and come right back with more on the Week in Review. Stay tuned. We got KOW's Bill Radke here. That'd be me. We've got Cairo 7's Essex Porter, Q13's Brandy Cruz, and from Unite Seattle Magazine, we have publisher and editor in chief M.K. Scott. And M.K., you told us about an episode in Aberdeen between a business owner and a transgender councilwoman there. What happened? Well, actually, this is interesting because um, I had originally heard about it like uh, last week about a uh, incident between a transgender uh, council member and a store owner. And then I realized that um, the store was actually in Aberdeen and uh, the person who, uh, the the business owner was actually someone that I have met a few times uh, as I go through Aberdeen on the way to Westport. But um, I was quite surprised pretty much the language of the sign, and then also the fact that the sign, which was derogatory to a transgender person, um, that it was like right up in front of the store. And he always has all these mannequins with, 
these Star Wars costumes and everything else all right in front of the store and one of them just happened to be, you know, the sign. Uh, well, what happened was, um, turns out that this transgender member of uh, the city council, um, when he, when she, when the when they were elected uh, back in 2019, um, she was going based on the name of Nathan Kennedy. Uh, so, and it was only just recently that the city council member has actually came out as transgender. So, I wouldn't be too surprised if the actual sign wasn't towards the transgender community in general, but it was towards this city council member who was originally the city council man compared to now a city council woman. And yeah. so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just to explain to listeners, this was a sign, okay. uh, you know, uh, uh, con- contradicting the idea of, of transgender identity, basically. And this council member um, said that she knows that this Star Wars memorabilia store owner can put up a sign and say what he wants. Uh, she just wanted to tell him. She she showed up with somebody videotaping the encounter where she wanted to tell him this was hurtful. What he wrote there was so demeaning and so dismissive of who I am and who any trans woman is. I would really like them to open their eyes and their heart and see that, you know, we are people, we are who we are, and all we want to be is accepted in our community. Well, this store owner told King Five, uh, well, th- this was, this was uh, how much he cares about somebody's feelings being hurt. Here's the thing, I don't give a about feelings anymore. I'm 70, I'm eight. I went to Vietnam to fight for all this. Do you think I care about some feelings? Absolutely not. Okay, don't care. Um, and so what was the significance of this, uh, this exchange to you, MK? Um, I think what happened was um, she actually went in there and um, they, she went into the actual store. She, you know, she wasn't as a customer. She actually went out there and went towards him and told him, you know, talked a little bit about it. And then they ended up uh, having more of a heated exchange right outside. And so he believes that his First Amendment rights is to, you know, express his freedom of speech. Um, and of course, then the, you know, the, per- the transgender council member, um, she feels that um, she was most likely the, the target of that hate speech. And so I think it, uh, I think they, we're surprised about what happened next, and that was the fact that uh, um, a lot of people do support uh, Mr. Sutcher's um, freedom, freedom of uh, um, speech, and so forth, and the fact that he was a Vietnam veteran, and so forth. But as someone who was a member of the LGBT press, and I know it's important for the rights of transgender people that anything they see that is derogatory, it means that there is a um, problem with them or them as a whole. And so, but then also you also need to figure out that the person, the business owner's age, you know, 78, uh, he is probably at a point of where he doesn't care about what people's feelings and he's 
he's there as a business owner and he feels like he can do it. I think his big mistake was actually having it outside the store. If he wanted to be a little bit more discreet about it, then whatever happens in his business, you know, is his business. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, Anything to add Essex or Brandy uh, on the issue? Well, no. Oh, ahead, Essex. Yeah, important important to remember that uh, the First Amendment protects uh, free speech basically from government uh, interference. And while speech is free, it is not necessarily consequence free. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, and that's what I'd say. I mean, it's a story as old as time. Uh, you put out an offensive sign and people were offended by it. Uh, and this is clearly a man, 78 years old, um, as MK said, who is not going to change his beliefs, is not going to apologize for it. So really, the only recourse for people um, is just to decide if that's where they want to spend their money. Right. Uh, you're listening to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. We're coming toward the end of the show here, which is the time when we uh, we turn and uh, give you something to smile about heading into the weekend. I, my contribution is that I'm enjoying the reaction to a new restaurant opening in three weeks in White Center. The former head chef at Canlis is opening this restaurant called Tomo. And uh, Brady Williams told Seattle Met that in the bathroom, the bathrooms will play recordings of whale sounds and the servers will be required to know the most recent happenings of the J-Pod, the resident orcas, in the Sailor Sea, and William said, we're a mile from the water. And another chef uh, reacted to that on Twitter from, uh, I don't know if it's pronounced Addo uh, in Seattle, and responded, I love when chefs move here and try to immerse themselves into the Northwest and talk about opening a restaurant that has their staff versed in J-Pod sounds and information. You're trying too hard. As a server, I couldn't imagine how angry I would be that the restaurant set me up to Woo, he, wah, kakai in the dining room when someone questions my knowledge or uh, of the J-Pod, and then it's Macklemore asking. <laughs> so I'm not sure what that means. But the chef also says, uh, to, to say that you're a mile from the water, we're in Seattle. We're all a mile from the water. So generally, I don't go for snark, but I guess it's just so local. It's so Seattle that, uh, that there's uh, J-Pod sounds in the, in the restaurant, and I, I might go myself. So uh, what else? Uh, anything else to th- that made you smile, uh, Brandy, uh, for this week? Well, no, I've been uh, I-, I planted two new bushes and I lost one in the last heat wave. And so I'm putting all my efforts toward uh, keeping the second one alive this weekend. So wish me luck. Much luck. <laughs> Essex Porter, how about you? I'm baking a key lime cake for a potluck this weekend. Looked for key limes last week, looked at QFC, looked at Whole Foods, couldn't find key limes. Finally relieved to find key limes at Yawajamaya. So I'm in good shape. <laughs> MK, we were at the end of the show. We got like 10 seconds. Anything that made you smile this week? Okay, well, uh, my fiance always makes me smile. Uh, mm. But most importantly, my sister, who was an anti-vaxxer, uh, tells me yesterday that she just got her vaccine. Uh, her and her fiance just got a vaccine yesterday. Oh. Welcome to the vaccinated. Uh, M.K. Scott, Unite Seattle Magazine. Thank you for that. Brandy Cruz of Q13 and Essex Porter from Cairo 7 with the show produced by Sarah Leibovitz and Alec Cowan and social media and live streaming from Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Uh, M.K. and Essex and Brandy, I love getting together with you. Thank you so much for being our Week in Review panel this week. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I'm Bill Radke. Let's do this again next week. 